Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. In a quick bit of follow-up from around this time last year, uh, in our SIHH episode, we mentioned that uh, Omega kind of reigned on the SIHH party by announcing that they were going to be re-releasing their caliber 321, which is a vaunted chronograph caliber that uh, many collectors have been trying to get their, their hands on, and the, the available stock has just been, been dwindling over the years and uh, prices have, have been skyrocketing. Uh, so this was fantastic news at the, the time, and uh, they did indeed deliver on that news. They released a, a chronograph housing the 321 in 2019, uh, but the, to the dismay of, of many collectors, the, the case material was not quite what, the, what they were expecting. Yeah, I don't think people were expecting them to release them in platinum only to the tune of I don't know. I, I see the platinum one is $74,000 Canadian, but I don't think that's what collectors were hoping for when they said that they were going to re-release the 321. Yeah, what people I think were, were vying for was uh, the stainless steel version. Yes. And that has finally come to pass. Yeah, they had to wait a year for it, but they've they've now got their, their 321 available to them in stainless. And uh, the, the price tag is appropriate, I would say. Um this this piece is uh, as far as collectability goes. I think Omega is is finally giving the Rolex Daytona a, a run for its money on just straight up collectability. From a technical standpoint, while I I love the the caliber three twenty one, the forty one thirty in the the Rolex is superior in in my humble opinion. But they they've got a, a serious piece of watchmaking going on here with uh, their, their 321 in stainless steel. And I'm delighted to finally see it. It has come to pass. Yeah. I have to say that I'm, I'm impressed with the looks of it. Um, it is absolutely the sort of the perfect speed master for me in terms of look, it's got the right caliber in it. It's got the right, you know, the right bezel. It's got all that stuff that I really, really love on it. But, I can't see myself ever buying one for the price that they're asking for it. Because I think this one's coming in at like $17,000 Canadian. I think that's what the MSRP is on it. Mm. And while I understand what it's competing with and, and um, you know, sort of the market that it's in, I just can't see justifying buying this watch. Um, and and it's unfortunate because, it is, as I said, it is the sort of the perfect look and everything. It's got all of got all the right features it's got all the right things but i i'm having a tough time getting excited about it because when i think about it i think about all the other watches i could buy especially from some independent you know makers that i think are more interesting and i could buy for a fraction of the price of this i i, I don't know it's it's tough for me to to uh, get too excited about a uh, what what will be a mass produced watch for you know, for that kind of money, it's, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can totally understand that, that perspective. You don't have to look back too many years to have seen pieces akin to this for around $2,000. Sure. But, uh, yeah, the, the market has changed so dramatically yeah. you know, in the, the last two decades or so. That's, uh, yeah, you can no longer justify this as a, a tool watch in, yeah. in the way that, that you could have in the 
the late 90s or early knots. And and honestly, having said that, I, I'm I'm clearly not the the target market for this. I know that they are going to sell out of every single one of these that they can make. I, I think that if you want one of these watches, you'd better get real friendly with your local Amiga dealer because I, I suspect it's going to be really challenging to get one of these watches. Uh, and good on them. I, I mean, they they're obviously know their market and they, they know that they're going to be able to sell them. But yeah, they've, they've certainly left me behind in terms of, of what I can justify and what um, what I'm interested in. Uh, which is too bad because I love the look of this, but uh, we've talked about this before that I'm not really a huge Chrono fan, and um, uh, cert- you know, sort of cool watches like this are not high on my list of things that I would buy, and uh, this is definitely priced it completely out of out of sort of what I would consider buying. Now you mentioned to, for you it has the the perfect bezel now, because mm. I know some people were a little disappointed that they they had gone to a, a ceramic bezel insert. See, I like the ceramic bezel insert. I think that that's nice. Um, I know, what was the original one in? It wasn't in ceramic. It was in... Bakelite. Yeah, Bakelite. I'm not a big fan of the Bakelite watch, uh, the Bakelite bezel. Uh, Bakelite's too unstable. I mean, even if it's just sitting there on the table, it's it's um, it's far less stable, obviously, than ceramic. And this is a tool watch. This is designed to be worn every day as a as a functional watch and Bakelite certainly doesn't have the uh, durability that the ceramic insert does. So I'm actually a fan of the, the ceramic insert. I know it moves away from its origins, but I think that it's an appropriate thing to do just like the, the case back like this, this has a, this has a Sapphire case back so that you can see the movement. The original didn't, it had a solid steel back on the, on it. Frankly, I, I like what they've done here. I like the decision to, put the crystal on the back. I want to be able to see that movement and um you know and I'm I'm happy that they did that. So I am happy with the changes that they made from um you know from sort of a more modern perspective. Uh, that doesn't you know none of that bothers me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could go either way on the the case back, but as far as the ceramic bezel insert and, and the sapphire crystals go, I I am absolutely 100% uh, behind all of that. I think it's, it's absolutely fine and it makes perfect sense as a, a modern reinterpretation of of this piece. Yeah. Uh, I know there are some purists out there who would, who would beg to differ. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be a purist, go go back and <laughs> buy the, the real thing, which will cost you significantly <laughs> more uh, than uh, what, what this will cost you, despite the fact that it, it is still a significant uh, sum to ask for, for a watch. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, we mentioned... I mentioned the the crystal, the sapphire crystal on the back. the The face is also sapphire crystal now, whereas the original was an acrylic crystal on it. And I again, it's a tool watch. It's something that you're you're supposed to wear every day. It's something that that I, certainly, if I were going to wear it, I would wear it every day. Just like I, you know, right now, basically, my Apple Watch is my tool watch, and I think about the way that I wear that watch, and I think about this watch, and I would wear this watch exactly the same way that I wear my. Uh, my Apple Watch, and if you look at my Apple Watch, even with the we we were discussing this a little bit uh, before we started recording, I, I've got the black uh, stainless steel Apple Watch with the DLC coating on it, and even that diamond light coating, I've managed to scratch that in in use in the shop. I know that my watches, you know, the the tool watches that I wear, the ones that I wear in the shop every day, I know they would get banged up and and abused, and having the sapphire crystal makes a big difference for me. And certainly prevents it from getting uh, getting destroyed quite as quickly as uh, as it might otherwise. And I know there's people out there who would cry just you know thinking about me wearing a watch like this 
uh, you know, on a daily basis in the shop. But again, it, for me, that's what this watch is. This watch is something that you wear on a daily basis and you you shouldn't be afraid to use it. Given that you're doing more video editing now, and I presume most of it's on your, your 16-inch? Yeah. Or all of it's on your 16-inch? All of it's on my 16-inch, yeah. yeah. A video recently, I think it was by Stallman, of uh, sort of 12 gadgets he's, he's found handy recently. And I noticed he, he is Velcroing SD card readers and, and hard drives to, to the lid of his MacBook. Uh, <laughs> would you ever go so far as to, to Velcro a, a hard drive? I, hard drive is the wrong word now, too, isn't it? It's, it's SSD. Yeah. Anyway, what, an SSD. Would you Velcro an SSD to the, the lid of your MacBook? So it's funny because the you know I hear I hear so many people complaining about uh, like the lack of ports in the these um, MacBooks and stuff like that. I don't think that there's been a card reader in a computer for the last fifteen years that was actually worth putting in the computer. Like for somebody like me, who's especially nowadays and I'm moving such large files around, those built-in card readers are so slow because they're they're usually not the like the latest and greatest spec thing like they're just whatever cheap reader they can put in that sort of ticks that checkbox without really going crazy with it so like i've got um, thunderbolt 3 card readers that i use for my cfast cards and my ss uh, my sd cards and then most of the time what i'm actually doing is recording straight to ssd so the um my black magic cinema camera actually records straight to an ssd and uh, so i've got one of those little uh, samsung t5 SSDs. Actually, I've got a couple of them. And those are great because they're tiny little things and they just plug in using um, uh, USB 3.0. They're reasonably fast. Even then, it can take a while to get the, the data off of them onto my um, my MacBook. But yeah, I um, I would never leave it, leave it sort of taped on to the back of the, the MacBook just because it, it goes back and forth between my, um, my Mac, uh, my camera constantly. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm constantly plugging SSDs into uh, into this thing and and offloading them onto the internal disk. There's a, a nice video on Seth Kennedy posted recently. Did you you catch that? Yeah, well, there was a great video of uh, of Seth. Um, I don't remember who it was. One of the Heritage Groups, Heritage Craft, HCA Heritage Crafts Association. There you go, yes. Heritage Craft Association. Uh, did a great little video on Seth Kennedy. We've spoken a few times about Seth. Uh, he was generous enough to uh meet up with me when uh I was in the UK a few years ago and then last year when I showed up I had a few hours to kill and uh, Seth was generous enough to come pick me up from Heathrow I hung out with him for the afternoon he and his family uh, we talked uh, talked shop quite a bit he's been learning uh, engine turning from one of the gentlemen who used to work for Pledge and Aldworth in London and so he's been uh, getting tutorials and and uh, sort of mentoring from uh, from him. This is part of his Quest scholarship, which is nice. Um, the uh, the Quest scholarship um, program is a an impressive program that uh, that was generated early '90s is when it started up, and it was um, designed to to help sort of preserve heritage crafts. And uh, it's the sort of thing that you apply for it and you, you give them a, uh, a plan of what you want to do and, and sort of how much you think that it will cost you to get additional training in uh, the heritage art that you want to do. Uh, so Seth, being an uh, antiquarian horologist, 
he wanted to know more about engine turning so that he could do more work on his uh, watch cases that he uh, he often ends up making as replacement cases for pocket watches and um yeah this this uh, shows off some of what he's been doing it's uh it's quite a nice video now having actually been in his workshop you've got to take a, a closer look at his engine turning equipment what do you, do you think of his setup yeah the engine that he's running is um if i remember correctly it's sort of a a cobbled together rose engine that um that he was able to acquire i think it's it may be on loan from steve who's uh, i think it was steve who's teaching him uh I th- it might have been something that's on loan to him from that i, I can't remember off the top of my head I'm, or if he had actually been able to purchase it or not um so it was it's an interesting engine because it's it's obviously been sort of scraped together from parts that were were salvaged from other machines and put on a new base uh, but it's quite capable. Uh, he's doing really nice work with it. And uh, I think it's going to be perfect for what it is that he's trying to do, which, as I said, is is primarily making cases. He's certainly come a long way uh, because when I first met him, he was just about to start on this journey. In fact, he had applied for the Quest scholarship and he ha- and he was waiting to hear back. And in fact, shortly after I returned to Canada, he had he messaged me and said that he had uh, he had successfully gotten into the uh, the scholarship program so it's uh he hasn't been doing this very long and he's already uh, made quite a bit of headway it's uh it's quite nice to see what he's doing as a british citizen living on the other side of the pond is the quest scholarship something you can actually apply for or, or do you have to be living in the uk to apply for it yeah you need to be a uk resident to be to be able to qualify for it so sadly being a uk citizen living in canada i don't qualify if and when I get a chance to live over there, I would certainly qualify as a UK resident. Uh, so we'll have to see. Maybe one of these days I'll be in a position where I can actually apply for it. Uh, it would certainly be nice to um, to use some money to to sort of expand and increase my knowledge in one of the arts that I do. Uh, fortunately, a lot of what I do is is stuff that would qualify for this. So yeah, we'll have to see what uh, what the future holds and and whether I eventually end up there and and I'm in a position to be able to apply for it. There's really nothing equivalent to that over here, which is frustrating. There are a couple of art grants that are available in Canada. Uh, the Ontario Arts Council uh, does one that um, that I've applied for a couple of times. Uh, the national level Arts Council uh, grant is is quite significant, uh, but you need to be uh, sort of an artist probably towards the end of their career as opposed to somebody who's at the beginning of their career or in the middle uh, like I am. Hopefully I'm not near the end of my career yet. Um, so it's it's certainly geared towards, the federal level one is certainly geared towards people who are quite established in their in their, in their a career and quite established in their art. So it's, uh, yeah, there's really nothing equivalent to it here. And, and though, even then those grants are all guided towards sort of artistic vision uh, more than they are in trying to preserve a particular heritage craft. So this, uh, this quest scholarship is nice. Uh, we know a number of people actually who've, um, who've been quest scholars over the years. Uh, I know Rebecca Struthers was in that category. Uh, we've spoken about her a number of times and, uh, Mia Sable's also been in that category. She was a traditional English saddle maker and she also makes, uh, watch straps as well, custom watch straps. 
So yeah, there's a, there's a number of people that uh, that I've met over the years who are in it, and um, it's a very very worthwhile program. And everybody that I've spoken to who's been involved has been has had nothing but good things to say about it. So if you're if you happen to be in the UK, and this is the sort of thing that you think might apply to you, then uh, you might want to consider applying for it. I'll put a link in the show notes for uh, where you can get to their website, but it's a, a great program. And they I know they also put on a number of shows on a regular basis where all of the people who are showing are all quest scholars uh, so it's a chance to see what these people are doing and to be able to buy their work as well so certainly worthwhile if you ever get a chance to uh, go to one of those um, those go those showings it sounds like the foundation itself also makes opportunities for the, the scholars to interact with one another and, and provides avenues for mentorship and mm-hmm. just cross disciplinary work and uh, transfer of knowledge that can happen that way as well yeah, and a lot of these arts are, you know, they're complementary, right? You've got somebody like, a, you know, again, like a Mia Sable who was doing traditional English saddlery work. And while I'm sure there's certainly work available for that, uh, that's, you know, the the skills that are involved with that are also perfect for watchmaking and being able to apply to uh, to straps for watches. And so you you have somebody like her being able to then get in, you know, get in contact with somebody like Rebecca Struthers, who is a watchmaker. And, you know, if they're main, they may not be, you know, sort of aligned in terms of using each other's products, but they'll have opportunities to be able to recommend each other to, to various clients of their own. Uh, so it's nice seeing that, uh, that kind of thing happening and, and the Quest Scholarship Program actually trying to bring those people together and uh, trying to sort of promote everything somewhat tangential to that. I actually know of a, a watch collector who uses a horse bridle conditioner to condition his watch straps. That's not surprising. The, uh, you know, when you consider the, the, the amount of abuse that these watch straps go through because they're on our wrists and we're sweating into them. I, I recently was uh, able to purchase a vintage Fears watch. It was a 1940s chronograph that, uh, that I was able to get. And uh, it still had the original or an early watch strap. I don't know if it was the uh, the original strap, but it's obviously a strap that's been with this watch for decades and decades. And it is in miserable condition. I I couldn't even think about wearing it, even if it was uh, long enough for my wrist. It is in such horrible condition. So, yeah, the when you consider the the environment that these uh, these watch straps can be subjected to. I'm not surprised that a conditioner like that is it would you know is something that people would use because it would certainly be appropriate. Years ago, I was you know just working on a watch as I do, and uh, just had this this thought that putting the, a new crown on a stem as to why no company had yet sort of come to to dominate and monopolize the the market on. On crowns and, and standardize it and just have an inner crown that you could then cap with another crown so you could have this amazing waterproof system something like the the trip lock or the dual lock system that, that rolex has let's so have one company standardize that and just make it waterproof and completely foolproof and then also make it so that you can set your cap so that the logo is always perfectly vertical once you, you screw the the crown down and uh, I just you know, ruminated on this for a time and then just you know, filed it in a back drawer in my mind. And then years later, uh, it turns out a company did, in fact, make this system or style of, of crown for a watch. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not 
going to, to dominate the market is proprietary and uh, even the company itself is, is limited to just a few of, of their watches in precious metal. Uh, but I was fascinated and encouraged to see that a company had actually gone ahead and, and been crazy enough to do something like that. And uh, it actually works amazingly well. It's quite brilliant. And I look forward to hopefully one day uh, seeing them roll it out across their, their entire line. And then who knows, 50 years down the road, once the, the patents on it lapse, maybe uh, someone will come to, to dominate the market and just make a generic crown that or a generic inner crown because the, the issue is that the the cap on a crown while it can wear out and you would want to replace it for aesthetic reasons it's the internal bits that are they're actually affecting the performance yeah they 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 have the the largest impact on how protected the watch is from the elements from from moisture and and dust and the like and those gaskets do wear out over time and need to be replaced and that's not a, a simple thing to do and in most cases you just wind up having to replace the crown so to have a a system whereby you could just put a a cap on a standardized fitting and and just maintain the water resistance of a a piece for years and years and years whether originally produced the watch that has happened to go belly up or whether they decide to to refuse to sell parts or what have you yeah you could still find a reasonable alternative for it yeah yeah to make it waterproof whereas now today that the reasonable alternative to to most companies who have decided to, to restrict parts is to go with a, a generic option, which isn't always the, the optimal route to go. Yeah, that's something I still haven't really thought about with my own watch yet is how I'm going to deal with the, the this crown and stem and tube that goes with it. I, I've got some ideas, but I'm, I still haven't really decided what I want to do with it because, as you say, the, the generic ones are not necessarily spectacular. Now, fortunately, in my case, I'm not trying to make a watch that's, you know, dive watch or anything like that. Like, it's not as if I need to worry about it being used down to a hundred meters or something. So that, that, that makes it a little bit easier for me, but yeah, it's, um, it's something that I've had to give some thought to and I, I still don't know for sure what I'm going to do with it. So what sort of shaper or knurling are you leaning towards on, on the outside of your crown? Uh, I think right now I'm, I'm leaning towards a mill grain pattern. I've got a few different rope patterns with, um, some of the mill grain cutters that I've got and I'm, I, I'm sort of experimenting a little bit with it. I, my experiments got cut off as I started packing for this uh, shop move. So unfortunately, a lot of that has been sort of put on hold while I'm trying to move into the new shop and get the machines up and running there and, and whatnot. But once they, once I'm back up and running and doing work there, I'm going to experiment with a few different designs. That uh, I I like the I like the look of what some of the mill grain textures give you. Uh, some of them are just very simple, uh, and then they look like fine knurling. Uh, there's a couple of others that uh, that look more like a rope pattern that I really like. So I'm going to experiment and see what works and, and what I think looks good with the um, the size and shape of the crown that I've got. So are these antique mill grain cutters that you've sourced or have no. you purchased or acquired new ones? No, these are new ones. They're, uh, they are commonly available. They're still used regularly in the jewelry industry. Uh, and they're used in various, uh, various things, particularly around settings. Um, in North America, we tend not to use bezel settings quite as often as uh, other places still do. Uh, bezel settings can be really nice, and they they certainly can add uh, some interesting look and feel to the way that a stone is set. Uh, but we tend not to use them very much here in North America anymore. Uh, so they are still certainly available, and there's a lot of people that are using them. Um, also, they they tend to be used on the the outsides of 
let's say larger diameter pieces. So maybe if you're producing a, a pendant or a brooch or something like that, uh, you might use a milgrain texture around it to uh, to sort of create a a nice texture around the edge of a of a larger piece uh, without going into coining or something like that. So now they're certainly available still. Uh, they're not inexpensive, unfortunately. They're uh, I think the the milgrain cutters that I've got are in the, like the hundred dollar range each. So they're uh, they're not inexpensive, and if you want to get a different size texture, uh, you you need to buy a whole new cutter. There's um, mm. it's it's not as if there's sort of a set of them that you get for a, for a low price. Um, the the quality ones are are not cheap. So it's uh, it's a question of finding what works well. In particular, it's a question of finding what works well at the diameter that you want to work at, uh, because they do they do look different depending on what size of diameter you, it is that you're trying to uh, to use them on just like knurling uh, you know if you're if you're turning something that's a small diameter then obviously using a really coarse knurling is not going to look good it's not going to work right um so it's uh it's a question of getting that balance right you've already sort of answered what I was about to ask you next but I will ask anyway in case there's more you'd like to add what sort of factors did you consider when you decided to invest in the particular mill grain patterns that you did yeah so when you buy them the diameter of the cutter itself is the same or very close to being the same um, but what you tend to be looking at is the width of the pattern that it's cutting uh, so it may be you know let's say a 1.1 millimeter width or 1.4 millimeter width so i've got a few that are in sort of a, a range um, of width so that they can you know depending on on what i'm looking for and how wide it's going to look on the piece uh, I can use different ones. And then you also get different shapes of patterns. So uh, you can get something as simple as a, you know, a little um, neural, um, you know, so it's just a, like, let's say a straight neural. Uh, this one that I, these ones that I've got have uh, sort of a rope texture to them. And, uh, and I like the look of that. It's a little bit, a um, little bit different. It's not quite, um, not quite as plain as a, as a straight neural is. Uh, so the, the width of that of that uh, that uh, mill grain texture is is sort of what you're buying for, and then it's a question of figuring out okay, you know that looks great if I'm turning it on a piece that's let's say ten millimeters in diameter, but if I'm turning something on a crown and that crown is only let's say four millimeters in diameter, how is that mill grain texture going to look? Is it too coarse? Is it fine enough? Is it too wide? Uh, because you know maybe that. 1.4 millimeters is too wide, or it may be that that's perfect because that gives you a little bit more grip on the crown as you're trying to turn it. Uh, a lot of little factors like that. And then, of course, it's a question of finding them in the sizes that you want. And it, it may turn out that the size that I'm looking for is not necessarily available. And so I have to decide if I'm going to sort of compromise on what I'm using or if I try and figure out a way of, of either making it myself or finding somebody who can uh, make one for me. And what material is the cutter actually made out of? Is it like a, a Whittier hard steel? Uh, it's a hardened steel. It's a hardened tool steel. Um, so they, they're typically hobbed. And um, if, for the manufacturing of them, they're typically hobbed. So there's a master that's, that's um, driven, uh, a master in hard steel that's driven. And then you spin the cutter, what's going to become the cutter onto it, and you force it on while the metal is, um, while that steel is softened, while it's annealed. And... You're um, you're basically deforming that um, that cutter into the shape that you want, and then after you've done that, you clean it up and you then harden it, and then it becomes a, a hardened cutter. 
few of the people in the ornamental turning world have actually made their own custom knurling pools. Now these are designed for larger diameter cutters and larger diameter work primarily, so they're they're a little bit um, a little bit too big for what um, what I'd be doing here. And they're actually cutting those knurls into the cutter themselves, and then they're hardening it afterwards. And there's been some impressive results that people have been getting with that. Uh, and that's something that I might use for some of the other projects that I'm working on, maybe even for cutting the outside diameter of a case where it's a larger diameter and I can get away with using a larger knurling pattern. Uh, so that may be a possibility for something like that. But for the size of a mill grain texture that you're getting on something like a crown, uh, you you definitely need to be able to uh, cut something rather small. And I'm not sure that I could reliably cut that uh, with the um, sort of the options that I have available to me right now in my shop. Switching gears uh, a little bit here, uh, have you ever worked with a, a hob? My understanding of a, a hob is that it's, it's essentially like what I'd be using as a, a gear cutter or a, a fly, but you've got several of them uh, lined up next to each other. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways you can use hobs, and that's one of them is that you can you can sort of cut multiple gears simultaneously with them. Uh, and I, I have used that for cutting larger toothed gears. Um, they're certainly uh, effective if you if you've got one. They're uh, they're a really great way of uh, of cutting them. Uh, I've also used them for cutting worm gears. Uh, that's uh, that's an effective way of cutting worm gears as well if you've got the right um, the right hob set up. And then again, when you're hobbing with um, with this, you can force that uh, that softened metal into it and and sort of do a combination of both cutting it and um, sort of distorting it a little bit and forcing the hardened hob into the into the uh, the softer cutter and uh, and you can get some interesting interesting results that way. And what were you cutting a, a worm gear for? Was that for a pen or something else entirely? Okay. <laughs> no, actually, that was my um, my pen chuck for my straight line engine. Uh, years ago, David Lindo and I uh, modified an eight millimeter watchmaker's lathe into a pen chuck for the straight line engine. Uh, so we needed to go from having a free spinning headstock to something that was indexable. We created a, uh, a worm gear system to be able to evenly divide the headstock of the watchmaker's lathe. And I think I can do up to 3,600 divisions uh, using the, the worm gear setup that I've got easily, hmm. um, which is obviously ridiculous. There's no way that I would ever need that much, but it gives me the flexibility to do pretty much whatever I want on it. And, um, and that's, that's allowed me to do some things that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do otherwise with some of the more limited indexing systems that are available on, on something like a watchmaker's lathe. Uh, sometimes, you know, something like a 192 divisions, let's say is, is, um, just a bit too limiting, uh, for a particular pattern or whatever it is that you're doing. So, um, yeah, that, uh, that accuracy and that uh, divisibility of it has been um, has been convenient. So yeah, that's uh, that was the first place that I uh, I ever cut a, a worm gear like that was uh, was for that that particular uh, add on for my my straight line engine. And it served you very well. Yeah, I've turned turned uh, engine turned over a hundred pens on that thing. It's um, and experimented with hundreds and hundreds more. Uh, certainly done some interesting interesting work on it and it's been able to uh been able to produce some really quality work that uh using that 
watchmaker's lathe as a base was um was definitely a uh, a stroke of genius on David's part. He was the one who who had recommended it, and I happened to have an extra one around. So that was uh, it was a nice base. It gave us a, a very accurate base to work on. Uh, as we've discussed in the past with engine turning, having variance in the uh, uh, the runout, the concentricity of the part is uh, is a huge problem. While you're engine turning, you want to make sure that you have uh, as high a concentricity as possible. So the fact that I can easily make uh, adapters and stuff for this lathe and the headstock itself has uh, has very, very little run out has made for uh, an excellent tool to be able to actually, you know, work effectively with it and, and get some work done. Uh, I'm thinking about making a, a modified or a new one that's geared more towards production so I can sort of use this one to experiment and figure out what the pattern needs to look like. And then the production one, I want to set it up so that I can put customized indexes on it after I've figured out what they need to be and then be able to quickly move from from cut to cut without needing to sort of manually move the dial around. Because that's the, the biggest limitation right now is I have to slowly move the dial from from one one cut to the next. And that leads to potential problems. Like I can make mistakes quite easily with it if I'm not paying attention. Mm-hmm. So potential for human error yeah exactly and and when you're engine turning there's so many potential problems there with human error so uh, if i can reduce that down and and get rid of another one then that would be good but i like having the flexibility of the of the worm gear and being able to choose whichever division i want and then again from there i can easily make my own my own uh, index cutters or index wheels for another pencil chuck and uh that'll that'll speed things up quite a bit you mentioned David Lindo there, and he, he is well-known mm-hmm. within the engine-turning community as, as being one of the key figures involved in in reviving the manufacturing of the, yeah. the machines that actually enable the art. And uh, you were talking to me a little bit the other day about their, their highest-end machines. Mm. And uh, do you happen to know if, if this style of fixture that you've created for turning the the pens upright like that on a, a straight-line engine, is that... Uh, it, optional add-on for for their highest end machines yeah it it isn't really something that that's appropriate for that um because the the engine that i'm using mine on is um is a straight line engine and theirs is a rose engine the made lathe is a rose engine and while they do have a straight line attachment for the made lathe i believe the pencil chuck that they've developed for it is based off of a Sureline uh, setup, a Sureline lathe setup. And I think they're using the built-in indexing setup that comes off of a Sureline lathe. So it's a similar idea, um, but it's not quite the same. Uh, yeah. it's, and I don't know how many people use it, to be honest. Um, there's, there's all sorts of problems that end up happening when you start converting rotary motion into vertical motion, and uh, some weird things happen. I do know there are people who, who do it, don't get me wrong. Uh, there certainly are people that do it, although I think they're mostly using it for ornamental turning and um, and using a spinning cutter. Engine turning, the faults that you end up having because of the um, that translation in, in um, motion, I think show up a little bit more with engine turning. Uh, I know a couple of people have used their their engines uh, for doing some some guiche work on pens. 
Um, but I don't know that it's quite as good as using a proper straight line engine. Like I think it's because it sort of does a, a very, very, very elongated oval. Um, but it's still, I don't know that you can completely get rid of the oval. I think there's still a little bit of a gap in the center uh, between sort of the upstroke and the downstroke. And, um, you know, so I don't think your I don't think your line is perfectly straight. It, if you have the machine and you can do it, then then you may as well try it. It's uh, it's certainly going to give good enough results for most people. I wasn't even aware that they were were making a, a higher end version than their their standard lathe, and uh, I have to say I don't really know a whole lot about it, which is why I was, I was curious. Yeah, the uh, the made lathe is is an impressive machine. Um, I've I've had a chance to work on a few of them. Al Collins has one of the made lathes, one of the early made lathes, and I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to work on his uh, while I was down visiting him uh, a couple of years ago. Actually, I got stuck in LA for the day and, and Al kind of rescued me. Uh, I was, um, Air Canada screwed up my flights and I had a day, uh, an unexpected day in, in LA and Al happens to live down there and I gave him a call and he was uh, generous enough to come pick me up and and uh, let me play in his shop for the day. So I got a chance to play on his made lathe for a day, and it, it's an impressive machine. Um, certainly geared towards ornamental turning originally, and um, it's entirely capable of doing guilloche work. I'd love to own one of these things. Unfortunately, it's it's far outside of my my budget in terms of buying machines, but it's uh, it's an impressive machine. And again, the guilloche work that people are doing, the rose engine work that people are doing on it is just unbelievable. Uh, I, I wouldn't use it for straight line work, but I already have a straight line engine. So, you know, I, I would, I would always stick with my straight line engine for doing, uh, for doing that kind of work. But for rotary work, it's just, it's unbelievable. There's certainly nothing that you can buy today that's being made today that is anywhere near the quality of what that, uh, that lathe is. Um, you know, you might be able to find some older machines that are, you know, that are as capable, maybe. Um, but it, you're, you're not going to be able to find a new machine today that's, uh, that's as capable as that made lathe is. So how much would it set you back if you were to, to fully kit out, uh, one of these machines from, from made? Probably over a hundred thousand dollars US. That'd be my guess. I think the base made lathe is, uh, is about 85, 88, something like that. I, it's been a while since I've looked at the price list, so I'm um, I may be off on some of those numbers, but uh, I'm sure by the time you add all the bells and whistles to it, it's going to be north of $100,000 US. Impressive piece of kit. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And I would love to have one in my uh, in my studio. But, uh, you know, for that kind of money, there's a lot of other machines that I could add to my shop for, for that sort of money that would be more useful to me on a, on a regular basis. Certainly none of them would look nearly as nice as this because that's the other thing. The made lathes look absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I'd be... Well, I have had engines in my living room for many years, and uh, this one I would be more than happy to have in my my living room. It's um, absolutely stunning. So, I hope one day that I can acquire one of these, but um, it'll be a while, unfortunately. And as I said, it's it's sort of tough to justify from a um, you know from a business point of view, um, just because there you know there are ways that I can actually accomplish the rose engine work that I would want to do on it without needing to get a machine like that. Mm-hmm. Well, now that the machines are all beginning to to settle into place in your your new shop, how long do you think it'll be before you you have your rose engine and your your straight line engine back up and running? It's not going to be too long. the uh, 
the electricians are nearly finished, and so all of the powered machines are are getting close to being done. Uh, we'll be able to uh, to be able to get them into their final positions, and there's a little bit of of maintenance work that needs to be done on these machines. I need to rewire a couple of them. A few are getting new motors. We need to get some a few things you know, like workbenches and stuff like that built. So uh, I think that uh, by the end of this week. We'll probably be able to start plugging in a few of the machines, and um, I think in the next few weeks I'll be able to actually get the get the rest of this stuff uh, sort of built and and uh, working. Uh, the the straight line engine and the rose engine that I need to reassemble uh, that's still in parts, so I need to uh, get that all to the shop and get it uh, get it assembled properly and get them recalibrated and tuned and everything like that because that takes a little bit of work and effort. And then there's also some work that I need to do on my Rose engine. Uh, the, right now, the rosettes that are on it, uh, first off, they're really chewed up. They, that uh, Rose engine was certainly used in a production environment for many, many years, and the rosettes that are on it are pretty heavily chewed up. So I need to uh, make new ones, and uh, ones that are maybe a little bit more appropriate for doing watch dials and cases and things like that. This the type of work that I'm actually going to be doing. Uh, so there's a little bit of work like that that needs to be done. And um, as I said, just some basic maintenance. Uh, a lot of my machines are rather old and I've put off doing maintenance work on them because I didn't really have the space to uh, to work on them. So I think this will be a good opportunity for me to do that. And, uh, uh, you know, we've got some other projects to work on, things like workbenches and furniture and stuff like that. So a lot of woodworking projects to do around the studio and and stuff to sort of improve our gallery space and whatnot. So I, I'm sure that we'll focus on that for a lot of the, the actual making of things. And then, you know, that'll give me some, uh, an opportunity to, to do a little bit of maintenance work and, and get machines back up and running. Oh, and of course I, I still have to make my new watchmakers bench, the um, motorized standing desk that I'm going to use as the base for it. Uh, that arrived this morning at the studio. And so now I just need to uh, work on assembling that and making a uh, proper bench top for it so that I can uh, get get to work again and uh, get all my, my watchmaking set up again. And which standing desk did you also end up going with in the end? I ended up buying the one from Fully that I've spoken about before. It's the Jarvis is the uh, the model that they, they sell. And you can buy it with just a base and no top on it. Uh, so that's the one that I ended up going for. Uh, based on a couple of reviews that I've read over the years from from the different sort of common standing desks that are out there. This one happens to have a a more durable motor, a, a certainly a stronger motor than than a lot of the others. This one's rated for a heavier weight. Uh, most of them are rated to a maximum of 200 pounds as a, you know, sort of a lift capacity. This one's rated for 300 pounds. That sort of gives me a little bit more confidence in its ability to sort of last for a while. I'm not planning on loading it up with a lot of machines, but it is going to have a heavy bench top on it. And so I want to make sure that it's it can handle the sort of the work that I'm putting it through. As I said, I hope the hope to start working on that workbench sometime in the next month, and probably you know take a, a while before I sort of have a sense of of how it's it's holding up as a as a workbench in terms of its sturdiness and things like that. You know, maybe by the uh, the end of the summer I'll be able to do a uh, a quick review of what I think of this standing desk as a base for a a watchmaker's bench. And uh, hopefully that's uh, hopefully it's durable and it does what I need it to do. And then uh, once I've done that, I've also got to make some drawer units for it as well because it, I, I desperately am in need of of uh, sort of drawer space for actually 
storing tools and things that I'm not using on a on a regular basis. I've got a couple of designs that I want to make for that because I've looked around and uh, first off, a lot of the the drawer units that are out there are really not that great. Uh, they're not cheap and they're not that great. And the ones that are really good are ridiculously expensive and often being shipped from Europe. So the shipping costs on them are astronomical. So I I've, think I've decided that I'm just going to make my own drawer units for it and uh, just sort of bite the bullet and, and do the work myself. That'll be probably a project for over the summer because I, I don't need those immediately, but uh, they'll certainly be important to have once I get working on a regular basis in there. Yeah, it's it's hard to find appropriate drawers for watchmaking purposes. Lista makes some phenomenal cabinets, but oh yeah, yeah, trying to get one here in in Canada was, you know, cost you an arm. <laughs> yeah, an arm and a couple legs. I, I've looked at uh, a few of those list of uh, cabinets on auction sites because there's been some uh, government auctions and things like that, and and a few sort of machine shops going out of business, and they've had them as you know cabinets for tool making and things like that. And uh, even at auctions, those things go for astronomical sums of money. And so it's I, I just can't justify it. I'd love to have them, and, I, and I'm sure that they are worth it. But I, I just cannot justify the price that they're, uh, that they're asking for those. Well, looping back to motors for a moment, it sounds like you got a, a good one on your, your standing desk. Mm-hmm. But I, I hear you, you may have a bone or two to pick uh, about uh, the, some of the motors that, that shipped it to you for your, for your machines that you, you mentioned you'll be installing. Yeah, we've we've had an interesting time because we've been building a lot of machines lately. Um, uh, we've Rich has bought a bunch of new uh, woodworking equipment, a bunch of Laguna woodworking equipment, and it's been interesting building that stuff. First off, some of that stuff, the instructions are just horrible. Trying to build some of these things, um, you know, we put together a saw stop, saw a table saw, and a bunch of um, a bunch of other woodworking machines and. Some of these, some of these companies really need to work on their their instructions. Um, you know, there's bits that they they don't talk about at all, or they talk about way late in the process when it would have been much easier to install it earlier in the process. Um, they they need to go to the IKEA sort of school of of um, assembly instructions because uh, some of them are just horrible. And then we had problems where the the pulley was installed backwards on the bandsaw that we got. So yeah, it's been an interesting time and it, uh, it just, you know, none of it's impossible to get around and, and, uh, I'm sure the machine would have worked okay if, if it had been set up the way that it was uh, shipped from the factory, but it's, it's nice to get things set up properly and, uh, it just takes more time. Of course, it's, just, you know, everything drags on a little bit and it, it takes a little bit more time to, you know, to actually get complete. So yeah, it's slowly getting there and, and it, you know, even though the new machines, they don't require the maintenance that my old machines do, but they do require the maintenance of building them from scratch. So that's, uh, it's been an interesting challenge, but we're getting there. We're, we're pretty close at this point. Well, if it was egregious enough to have filmed a video about it. <laughs> yes. And look out, look out to your listener for a, a video in the, in the near future, which is came from a rant I had one night of, of how people were not using the, the hubs and pulleys properly on these machines. So there will be a video on that, and uh, hopefully it will be informative to enough people. And uh, maybe you never know, there's, there'll be somebody at the Laguna factory who will pass it around and teach their employees how to use the hubs and, and pulleys properly. Stay tuned to Low and Design on, on YouTube. Be among the, the first to catch that video when it drops.
Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. There's a, a nice video on Seth Kennedy posted recently. Did you, you catch that? I did catch that. That was a great video uh, seeing. I assume this is the show. Uh, we're in the show. <laughs> or do you want to start differently? Is this the show, John? Uh, <laughs> are you going to use anything we've been use, talking yeah, about I so can, far? Do you I want to start fresh? No, no, I can use some of it. Okay. All right. This, this is the show.